6. Night Thoughts Love was over, and her man was sleeping beside her. Her man. She smiled a little in the darkness, his seed still trickling with slow warmth from between her slightly parted thighs, and her smile was both rueful and pleased, because the phrase, her man, summoned up a hundred feelings. Each feeling examined alone was a bewilderment. Together, in this darkness floating to sleep, they were like a distant blues tune heard in an almost deserted nightclub, melancholy but pleasing. Loving you, baby, is just like rolling off a log. But if I can't be your woman, I sure ain't gonna be your dog. Had that been Billie Holiday? Or someone more prosaic like Peggy Lee? Didn't matter. It was low and torchy, and in the silence of her head it played mellowly, as if issuing from one of those old-fashioned jukeboxes, a Wurlitzer perhaps, half an hour before closing. Now, moving away from her consciousness, she wondered how many beds she had slept in with this man beside her. They had met in college, and had first made love in his apartment. That had been less than three months after her mother drove her from the house, told her never to come back, that if she wanted to go somewhere she could go to her father, since she had been responsible for the divorce. That had been in 1970. So long ago? A semester later they had moved in together, had found jobs for the summer, and had kept the apartment when their senior year began. She remembered that bed the most clearly, a big double that sagged in the middle. When they made love, the rusty box spring had counted the beats. That fall she had finally managed to break from her mother. Jack had helped her. She wants to keep beating you, Jack had said. The more times you phone her, the more times you crawl back begging forgiveness, the more she can beat you with your father. It's good for her, Wendy, because she can go on making believe it was your fault. But it's not good for you. They had talked it over again and again in that bed, that year. Jack sitting up with the covers pulled around his waist, a cigarette burning between his fingers, looking her in the eye. He had a half-humorous, half-scowling way of doing that, telling her, She told you never to come back, right? Never to darken her door again, right? Then why doesn't she hang up the phone when she knows it's you? Why does she only tell you that you can't come in if I'm with you? Because she thinks I might cramp her style a little bit. She wants to keep putting the thumbscrews right to you, baby. You're a fool if you keep letting her do it. She told you never to come back, so why don't you take her at her word? Give it a rest. And at last, she'd seen it his way. It had been Jack's idea to separate for a while, to get perspective on the relationship, he said. She had been afraid he had become interested in someone else. Later she found it wasn't so. They were together again in the spring, and he asked her if she had been to see her father. She had jumped, as if he'd struck her with a quirt. How did you know that? The shadow knows. Have you been spying on me? And his impatient laughter, which had always made her feel so awkward, as if she were eight and he was able to see her motivations more clearly than she. You needed time, Wendy. For what? I guess to see which one of us you wanted to marry. Jack, what are you saying? I think I'm proposing marriage. The wedding. Her father had been there, her mother had not been. She discovered she could live with that, if she had Jack. Then Danny had come, her fine son. That had been the best year, the best bed. After Danny was born, Jack had gotten her a job typing for half a dozen English department profs. Quizzes, exams, class syllabi, study notes, reading lists. She ended up typing a novel for one of them, a novel that never got published, 
much to Jack's very irreverent and very private glee. The job was good for forty a week, and skyrocketed all the way up to sixty during the two months she spent typing the unsuccessful novel. They had their first car, a five-year-old Buick with a baby seat in the middle. Bright, upwardly mobile young marrieds. Danny forced a reconciliation between her and her mother, a reconciliation that was always tense and never happy, but a reconciliation all the same. When she took Danny to the house, she went without Jack. And she didn't tell Jack that her mother always remade Danny's diapers, frowned over his formula, could always spot the accusatory first signs of a rash on the baby's bottom or privates. Her mother never said anything overtly, but the message came through anyway. The price she had begun to pay, and maybe always would, for the reconciliation was the feeling that she was an inadequate mother. It was her mother's way of keeping the thumbscrews handy. During the days, Wendy would stay home and housewife, feeding Danny his bottles in the sun-washed kitchen of the four-room, second-story apartment, playing her records on the battered, portable stereo she had had since high school. Jack would come home at three, or at two if he felt he could cut his last class, and while Danny slept he would lead her into the bedroom, and fears of inadequacy would be erased. At night, while she typed, he would do his writing and his assignments. In those days, she sometimes came out of the bedroom where the typewriter was to find both of them asleep on the studio couch, Jack wearing nothing but his underpants, Danny sprawled comfortably on her husband's chest with his thumb in his mouth. She would put Danny in his crib, then read whatever Jack had written that night before waking him up enough to come to bed. The best bed, the best year. Sun gonna shine in my backyard some day. In those days, Jack's drinking had still been well in hand. On Saturday nights, a bunch of his fellow students would drop over, and there would be a case of beer and discussions in which she seldom took part because her field had been sociology and his was English. Arguments over whether Pepys' diaries were literature or history. Discussions of Charles Olson's poetry. Sometimes the reading of works in progress. Those and a hundred others. No, a thousand. She felt no real urge to take part. It was enough to sit in her rocking chair beside Jack, who sat cross-legged on the floor, one hand holding a beer, the other gently cupping her calf or braceleting her ankle. The competition at UNH had been fierce, and Jack carried an extra burden in his writing. He put in at least an hour at it every night. It was his routine. The Saturday sessions were necessary therapy. They let something out of him that might otherwise have swelled and swelled until he burst. At the end of his grad work, he had landed the job at Stovington, mostly on the strength of his stories, four of them published at that time, one of them in Esquire. She remembered that day clearly enough. It would take more than three years to forget it. She had almost thrown the envelope away, thinking it was a subscription offer. Opening it, she had found instead that it was a letter saying that Esquire would like to use Jack's story concerning the black holes early the following year. They would pay $900, not on publication, but on acceptance. That was nearly half a year's take typing papers, and she had flown to the telephone, leaving Danny in his high chair to goggle comically after her, his face lathered with creamed peas and beef puree. Jack had arrived from the university forty-five minutes later, the Buick weighted down with seven friends and a keg of beer. After a ceremonial toast, Wendy also had a glass, although she ordinarily had no taste for beer. Jack had signed the acceptance letter, put it in the return envelope, and went down the block to drop it in the letterbox. When he came back, he stood gravely in the door and said, 
Veni, vidi, vici. There were cheers and applause. When the keg was empty at eleven that night, Jack and the only two others who were still ambulatory went on to hit a few bars. She had gotten him aside in the downstairs hallway. The other two were already out in the car, drunkenly singing the New Hampshire fight song. Jack was down on one knee, owlishly fumbling with the lacings of his moccasins. Jack, she said, you shouldn't. You can't even tie your shoes, let alone drive. He stood up and put his hands calmly on her shoulders. Tonight I could fly to the moon if I wanted to. No, she said. Not for all the Esquire stories in the world. I'll be home early. But he hadn't been home until four in the morning, stumbling and mumbling his way up the stairs, waking Danny up when he came in. He had tried to soothe the baby, then dropped him on the floor. Wendy had rushed out, thinking of what her mother would think if she saw the bruise before she thought of anything else. God help her, God help them both. And then picked Danny up, sat in the rocking chair with him, soothed him. She had been thinking of her mother for most of the five hours Jack had been gone, her mother's prophecy that Jack would never come to anything. Big ideas, her mother had said. Sure, the welfare lines are full of educated fools with big ideas. Did the Esquire story make her mother wrong or right? Winifred, you're not holding that baby right. Give him to me. And was she not holding her husband right? Why else would he take his joy out of the house? A helpless kind of terror had risen up in her and it never occurred to her that he had gone out for reasons that had nothing to do with her. Congratulations, she said, rocking Danny. He was almost asleep again. Maybe you gave him a concussion. It's just a bruise. He sounded sulky, wanting to be repentant, a little boy. For an instant she hated him. Maybe, she said tightly, maybe not. She heard so much of her mother talking to her departed father in her own voice that she was sickened and afraid. Like mother, like daughter, Jack muttered. Go to bed, she cried, her fear coming out sounding like anger. Go to bed, you're drunk. Don't tell me what to do. Jack, please, we shouldn't... It... There were no words. Don't tell me what to do, he repeated sullenly, and then went into the bedroom. She was left alone in the rocking chair with Danny, who was sleeping again. Five minutes later... Jack's snores came floating out to the living room. That had been the first night she had slept on the couch. Now she turned restlessly on the bed, already dozing. Her mind, freed of any linear order by encroaching sleep, floated past the first year at Stovington, past the steadily worsening times that had reached low ebb when her husband had broken Danny's arm, to that morning in the breakfast nook. Danny outside playing trucks in the sand pile, his arm still in the cast. Jack sitting at the table, pallid and grizzled, a cigarette jittering between his fingers. She had decided to ask him for a divorce. She had pondered the question from a hundred different angles, had been pondering it, in fact, for the six months before the broken arm. She told herself she would have made the decision long ago if it hadn't been for Danny, but not even that was necessarily true. She dreamed on the long nights when Jack was out, and her dreams were always of her mother's face and of her own wedding. Who giveth this woman? Her father standing in his best suit, which was none too good. He was a traveling salesman for a line of canned goods that even then was going broke. And his tired face. How old he looked. How pale. I do. Even after the accident, if you could call it an accident, she had not been able to bring it all the way out. 
to admit that her marriage was a lopsided defeat. She had waited, dumbly hoping that a miracle would occur and Jack would see what was happening, not only to him but to her. But there had been no slowdown. A drink before going off to the academy, two or three beers with lunch at the Stovington house, three or four martinis before dinner, five or six more while grading papers. The weekends were worse. The nights out with Al Shockley were worse still. She had never dreamed there could be so much pain in a life when there was nothing physically wrong. She hurt all the time. How much of it was her fault? That question haunted her. She felt like her mother, like her father. Sometimes when she felt like herself, she wondered what it would be like for Danny, and she dreaded the day when he grew old enough to lay blame. And she wondered where they would go. She had no doubt her mother would take her in, and no doubt that after a year of watching her diapers remade, Danny's meals recooked and or redistributed, of coming home to find his clothes changed or his hair cut or the books her mother found unsuitable, spirited away to some limbo in the attic. After half a year of that, she would have a complete nervous breakdown, and her mother would pat her hand and say comfortingly, Although it's not your fault, it's all your own fault. You were never ready. You showed your true colors when you came between your father and me. My father, Danny's father, mine, his. Who giveth this woman? I do. Dead of a heart attack six months later. The night before that morning she had lain awake almost until he came in, thinking, coming to her decision. The divorce was necessary, she told herself. Her mother and father didn't belong in the decision. Neither did her feelings of guilt over their marriage, nor her feelings of inadequacy over her own. It was necessary for her son's sake, and for herself, if she was to salvage anything at all from her early adulthood. The handwriting on the wall was brutal, but clear. Her husband was a lush. He had a bad temper, one he could no longer keep wholly under control now that he was drinking so heavily and his writing was going so badly. Accidentally or not accidentally, he had broken Danny's arm. He was going to lose his job, if not this year, then the year after. Already she had noticed the sympathetic looks from the other faculty wives. She told herself that she had stuck with the messy job of her marriage for as long as she could. Now she would have to leave it. Jack could have full visitation rights, and she would want support from him only until she could find something and get on her feet. And that would have to be fairly rapidly because she didn't know how long Jack would be able to pay support money. She would do it with as little bitterness as possible. But it had to end. So thinking, she had fallen off into her own thin and unrestful sleep, haunted by the faces of her own mother and father. You're nothing but a home wrecker, her mother said. Who giveth this woman, the minister said. I do, her father said. But in the bright and sunny morning, she felt the same. Her back to him, her hands plunged in warm dishwater up to the wrists, she had commenced with the unpleasantness. I want to talk to you about something that might be best for Danny and I. For you, too, maybe. We should have talked about it before, I guess. And then he had said an odd thing. She had expected to discover his anger, to provoke the bitterness, the recriminations. She had expected a mad dash for the liquor cabinet. But not this soft, almost toneless reply that was so unlike him. It was almost as though the Jack she had lived with for six years had never come back last night as if he had been replaced by some unearthly doppelganger that she would never know or be quite sure of. Would you do something for me? A favor? 
What? She had to discipline her voice strictly to keep it from trembling. Let's talk about it in a week, if you still want to. And she had agreed. It remained unspoken between them. During that week he had seen Al Shockley more than ever, but he came home early and there was no liquor on his breath. She imagined she smelled it, but knew it wasn't so. Another week. And another. Divorce went back to committee, unvoted on. What had happened? She still wondered, and still had not the slightest idea. The subject was taboo between them. He was like a man who had leaned around a corner, and had seen an unexpected monster lying in wait, crouching among the dried bones of its old kills. The liquor remained in the cabinet, but he didn't touch it. She had considered throwing them out a dozen times, but in the end always backed away from the idea, as if some unknown charm would be broken by the act. And there was Danny's part in it to consider. If she felt she didn't know her husband, then she was in awe of her child, awe in the strict meaning of that word, a kind of undefined, superstitious dread. Dozing lightly, the image of the instant of his birth was presented to her. She was again lying on the delivery table, bathed in sweat, her hair in strings, her feet splayed out in the stirrups, and a little high from the gas they kept giving her whiffs of. At one point she had muttered that she felt like an advertisement for gang rape, and the nurse, an old bird who had assisted at the births of enough children to populate a high school, found that extremely funny. The doctor between her legs, the nurse off to one side, arranging instruments and humming. The sharp, glassy pains had been coming at steadily shortening intervals, and several times she had screamed in spite of her shame. Then the doctor told her quite sternly that she must push, and she did, and then she felt something being taken from her. It was a clear and distinct feeling, one she would never forget, the thing taken. Then the doctor held her son up by the legs. She had seen his tiny sex and known he was a boy immediately. And as the doctor groped for the air mask, she had seen something else. Something so horrible that she found the strength to scream again, after she had thought all screams were used up. He has no face. But of course there had been a face, Danny's own sweet face, and the call that had covered it at birth now resided in a small jar which she had kept, almost shamefully. She did not hold with old superstition, but she had kept the call nevertheless. She did not hold with wives' tales, but the boy had been unusual from the first. She did not believe in second sight, but... Did Daddy have an accident? I dreamed Daddy had an accident. Something had changed him. She didn't believe it was just her getting ready to ask for a divorce that had done it. Something had happened before that morning. Something that had happened while she slept uneasily. Al Shockley said that nothing had happened, nothing at all, but he had averted his eyes when he said it, and if you believed faculty gossip, Al had also climbed aboard the fabled wagon. Did Daddy have an accident? Maybe a chance collision with fate, surely nothing much more concrete. She had read that day's paper and the next day's with a closer eye than usual, but she saw nothing she could connect with Jack. God help her, she had been looking for a hit-and-run accident or a barroom brawl that had resulted in serious injuries, or who knew, who wanted to. But no policeman came to call, either to ask questions or with a warrant empowering him to take paint scrapings from the VW's bumpers. Nothing. Only her husband's 180-degree change and her son's sleepy question on waking. 
Did Daddy have an accident? I dreamed. She had stuck with Jack more for Danny's sake than she would admit in her waking hours, but now, sleeping lightly, she could admit it. Danny had been Jack's for the asking, almost from the first, just as she had been her father's almost from the first. She couldn't remember Danny ever spitting a bottle back on Jack's shirt. Jack could get him to eat after she had given up in disgust, even when Danny was teething and it gave him visible pain to chew. When Danny had a stomachache, she would rock him for an hour before he began to quiet. Jack had only to pick him up, walk twice around the room with him, and Danny would be asleep on Jack's shoulder, his thumb securely corked in his mouth. He hadn't minded changing diapers, even those he called the special deliveries. He sat with Danny for hours on end, bouncing him on his lap, playing finger games with him, making faces at him while Danny poked at his nose and then collapsed with the giggles. He made formulas and administered them faultlessly, getting up every last burp afterward. He would take Danny with him in the car to get the paper, or a bottle of milk, or nails at the hardware store, even when their son was still an infant. He had taken Danny to a Stovington Keene soccer match when Danny was only six months old, and Danny had sat motionlessly on his father's lap through the whole game, wrapped in a blanket, a small Stovington pennant clutched in one chubby fist. He loved his mother, but he was his father's boy. And hadn't she felt, time and time again, her son's wordless opposition to the whole idea of divorce? She would be thinking about it in the kitchen, turning it over in her mind as she turned the potatoes for supper over in her hands for the peeler's blade. And she would turn around to see him sitting cross-legged in a kitchen chair, looking at her with eyes that seemed both frightened and accusatory. Walking with him in the park, he would suddenly seize both her hands and say, almost demand, Do you love me? Do you love Daddy? And confused, she would nod or say, Of course I do, honey. Then he would run to the duck pond, sending them squawking and scared to the other end, flapping their wings in a panic before the small ferocity of his charge, leaving her to stare after him and wonder. There were even times when it seemed that her determination to at least discuss the matter with Jack dissolved, not out of her own weakness, but under the determination of her son's will. I don't believe such things. But in sleep she did believe them, and in sleep, with her husband's seed still drying on her thighs, she felt that the three of them had been permanently welded together, that if their three-oneness was to be destroyed, it would not be destroyed by any of them, but from outside. Most of what she believed centered around her love for Jack. She had never stopped loving him, except maybe for that dark period immediately following Danny's accident and she loved her son. Most of all, she loved them together, walking or riding or only sitting, Jack's large head and Danny's small one, poised alertly over the fans of old maid hands, sharing a bottle of Coke, looking at the funnies. She loved having them with her, and she hoped to dear God that this hotel caretaking job Al had gotten for Jack would be the beginning of good times again. And the wind gonna rise up, baby, and blow my blues away. Soft and sweet and mellow, the song came back and lingered, following her down into a deeper sleep, where thought ceased and the faces that came in dreams went unremembered.